Hello and welcome to the That's Afterlife podcast with DM Esther Anson and Adrian Mills. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining me, Adrian. Uh, thank you. That's another day, another dawn. Another day, another dawn, and spring has sprung, and uh, my Christmas roses are looking up at last. It's funny they call Christmas roses because they come out in the spring, and they're very droopy. You know how things look droopy in the morning? <laughs> Do you know, it's uh, an age thing more than anything, I suspect, Esther. But it's they've turned their faces to the sun, and I've been gambling in the dew before, um, before our meeting, which is, has been very nice. <laughs> How's your week been? Uh, oh, well, you're going to love this. Um, Friday, I was out uh, in Wimbledon and um, I saw somebody behaving a bit too uh, a bit too close to a particular girl who had a cocker spaniel with her. And I knew what he was going to do. He pushed her and he grabbed the dog and he ran. And as he ran past me, I grabbed his grey hoodie, yanked him to the ground. The dog broke free, ran back to the girl and the guy ran off. And uh, it's what you read about everywhere. And I'm sure our listeners have suffered from this and dog napping. You deserve a special medal for that. Oh, I was so angry. And it was funny because my instinct told me straight away because I could hear him saying to her, well, wh what is sort of dog is this? Has, has it had puppies? Have you, have, uh, have, have you got another one like this? And I thought, oh, no, I don't like the sound of this. So I just hovered a bit close and uh, literally within seconds he was away. And uh, I'm just delighted I was able to do something. Fantastic. You know, we did a lot of not we didn't do dog napping items on that slice, but we did do puppy farms and talked about how dreadful it is that some of these breeders, because pedigree dogs are so expensive, they just get these poor little bitches and breed from them litter after litter and remove the puppies from their mothers far too early. And some of them are diseased. You know what the answer is? There's a very, very simple answer. Go on stop breeding pedigree dogs i mean they conform to our idea of physical beauty in a dog but usually they're suffering from all kinds of disabilities like hip dysplasia and bulldogs have been bred so their heads are so big they can't give birth normally it always has to be a cesarean and you know some of them have all kinds of genetic illnesses i Always, when we had dogs, they were always crossbreeds, rescue dogs, mongrels, and they lived to a great age. And if anything's happened to you and your dog, drop us a line at hello at thatsafterlife.com. we got a fantastic guest today. Oh, we have. She is actually um, the solution to a quiz question I made up. Here is the quiz question, Adrian. Okay, I'm ready. Which married couple both played a nurse in the same production. Is it somebody in Casualty? Holby <laughs> City? Well, of course, it's Imelda Staunton who is joining us today because she played the real life nurse in Shakespeare in Love and Jim Carter, her fantastic husband, played the nurse in the very first production of Romeo and Juliet, which was what the film was about. So it's a great thrill that we can welcome to the podcast Imelda Staunton, who has played the worst villain in Harry Potter, at least I think she was the worst villain. She's played extraordinary parts like Vera Drake on television and on films. And of course, she's about to play the queen in The Crown. That is going to be such a treat. You know, we talked the other week about life hacks. Yep. Yeah. 
I've got, well, I've got a fantastic one here. Uh, Julie from Leeds. She says, uh, dear Esther and Adrian, uh, you mentioned life hacks, uh, fog-free mirrors. Did you know you can prevent your bathroom mirror from fogging up after a hot shower with car wax? Apply a small amount of car wax to the mirror, let it dry, and then buff it with a soft, dry cloth. But wouldn't that make your knickers sticky? <laughs> oh! I beg your pardon. You're applying it to the mirror. I got carried away and thought you had to apply it to yourself. Well. <laughs> Moving yeah, on. How's your brain working? Well, I think it'd be easier to shower in a car wash, to be perfectly honest. Well, that's a very good life hack. Any more? Uh, yes, yeah. Um, well, actually, I was given one the other day. A friend of mine said that they'd heard uh, one of our shows, and they said, if you like a glass of white wine, and I know you do, Esther, instead of putting an ice cube in it, just freeze some grapes in the freezer so that when you pour your wine, you just drop the frozen grapes into because the water will dilute the wine, whereas the grapes won't. Good mm. one, what do you mean hmm i thought it was quite cool well yeah you see i'm a bit nostalgic about that because i've become allergic to all alcohol excuse me i cannot bear the smell of it it's weird you know i because the moment it gets into the glass and i raise it to my nose the smell puts me off so at the end of the day what is the tipple you will go to it's going to be a cup of tea isn't it cup of tea Right, Esther, uh, this, this is my favourite question this week. I have to say, coming up, right? Uh, if Esther went on to Celebrity Bake Off, what would be her signature dish? Now, I know what a good cordon bleu cook you are, Esther, so I can't wait for this answer. Occasionally, mad people do ask me to go on to cookery shows, you know, come dine with me and, and bake off and things. And I as kindly as possible refuse because my only recipe is pierce foil and wait for the ping. <laughs> or as my friend calls it, chicken ding. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I used to be able to cook. I, I, when I was in my teen years, I used to do quite a lot of cooking at home. But then when that's life took over my life and you know, I would arrive back sort of drained by having to prop people like you up day after day after day. Oh, oh, that tongue is still as sharp 30 years on. Well, anyway, I've, I found that if you were spending your whole day having to work your brain to a frazzle, some people actually find it very relaxing then to open a recipe book or to throw a few ingredients into a bowl and some magic emerges. And I, I enjoy watching people like Nigella, but I'm not at all tempted to follow their example. So for me, balance a few slices of cheddar on a, a dry cracker, have an orange, and uh, that, that's, that's my signature dish. <laughs> Gone are the days of the egg and chips, I seem to remember, when uh, we used to work at the BBC. Do you know that Victoria Wood, when she was rewriting Dinner Ladies, you know, because they used to rehearse it, then she'd take it away and polish it, the thing that kept her going all through the night, egg and chips. And for people that are listening to this, they may not realise Victoria Wood was on That's Life as well, wasn't she? Certainly was, yes. Yes, because I'd heard her. I, I think I'd seen her on one of the talent shows. You know, it was New Faces, something like that. And I thought mm. she was absolutely brilliant and invited her onto the show. And she did um, a song a week for us. 
and uh, famously, or at least famous to me, said, of me, I don't know why they go on about her teeth. Have you looked at her dresses? <laughs> but she was absolutely, uh, you know, always was a genius. I didn't realize quite how multi-talented she was because of course it wasn't just songs she wrote and piano she played, though Let's Do It is one of the finest bits of oh. British composition ever, don't you think? Yes, yes. So what's that line about being hit with a soggy Radio Times or something? Close, but not perfect. Yes, well, that's why she was a genius and I'm obviously not. Beat me on the bottom of the Woman's Weekly, I think it is. That's, oh, well, why, why did the Radio Times come into my thoughts? <laughs> Wouldn't be the same. Anyway, um, but of course she was a playwright. She was an actress. Fantastic. Now, what we've um, really been looking forward to so much is... Um, Imelda Staunton joining us in this program. And lo and behold, I see her now. Oh. How are you, Imelda? I cannot complain in any shape or form. Well, many people do, particularly in your august profession, because they miss the theatre so much. Are you finding that? Yes, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, that part of the industry has been really affected so badly mm. um and it's interesting because last in october september october last year i did um uh, a few of us did 12 of us did alan bennett's talking heads mm. and we did them on the television but then we did them at the bridge theater and i sort of thought hey will anyone come and they made the theater obviously completely safe they'd taken out 700 seats there were 200 seats there and they were packed and there were people there and i realized then gosh the communal experience is so vital. Mm. We've all been locked to our screens, haven't we? With some wonderful television, mm. but being in a room laughing with a hundred people or a thousand people or watching some sport with a hundred, whatever, it's, it really makes one's blood flow. It, it's, um, mm. so it was, it struck me then how important it is apart from me, you know, a, you know, doing it, uh, you know, in a way I'm thinking about the people who are watching it, myself included. I want to be in that theater mm. watching and being, taken out of myself. Well, it will come again. Have you, have you met my colleague, Adrian, who trained as an, an actor? So I saw him nodding throughout all that. I read an article today about Gary Oldman being turned down by RADA. Now you went, I think I'm right in saying to RADA, but you were turned down by a couple of other drama schools as well, weren't you? Yes, totally. I, I auditioned for three and I, and I heard from Central first, no thank you. Guildhall second, no thank you. So when the third letter came, and my mum actually opened the letter, she said, oh, this is a letter from, from, from Radha, so there's no point in reading it. Because I just thought, well, I'm not gonna get, and she started to, I'm very pleased to tell you. And I said, don't do that, don't joke about that. And of course, so anyway, so then that was it, my life changed. So that is lovely, Imelda, because here you are, not only a CBE and, you know, any minute now a dame and then doubtless a baroness, but 12 top awards, of course, including the Oscar. I stopped counting the nominations you've received for top awards until I got to 50. My favourite nomination that you got was... <laughs> was from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror. Crikey, what, what was that for? Well, you must guess that. Well, is it Harry Potter? It certainly is. Oh, okay. 
Never has such a lovely woman turned herself into such a monster. Mm, yes. How did you do that? Did you delve into your psyche and draw out, drag out memories of someone with a sweet smile who inflicted pain on small children? I think uh, J.K. Rowling did that. Okay. I think she did that. Um, and, um, and I remember... Uh, reading the script, you know, because we'd read the books, you know, ages before. And, and just one story about that is that, so I hadn't read it. I was just about to read it and a friend of ours phoned up and said, oh my goodness me, there's a part for you in this, this, this woman. So, so, but, but then I read the description. It said, small, fat, toad-like woman. <laughs> so I said, oh, thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. But anyway, so we got the script and actually, you know, I sort of thought, oh, the Harry Potter films all going to be quite, you know, jolly and funny and all that. And and then David Yates directed it, and he'd only done political drama on the television really before. And so he and I went in with a bit of a forensic eye on it, and and we, you know, delved into what she's really about, which is, I'm afraid to have to say, ethnic cleansing. She didn't want anything that wasn't pure blood, and of course that is terrifying. That's really terrifying. And, and, and I also remember discussing with the, with the costume designer. I said, you know, can we make her really soft on the outside? Because if I'm all sharp edges and sharp, you know, she's sharp, she, uh, make her soft. And, and then there's, there's a black interior. So that's what we went for. And I mean, the script allowed that. And David Yates, we really tried to make that happen. Um, and, I, and I think we sort of, we, we did make that happen because we took it extremely seriously, that this was the worst kind of evil. I mean, evil like Voldemort, who's, you know, horrible looking or that, but someone, and those are the most dangerous people, aren't they, of course? The people who smile. And uh, so, so that's what we went for. May I ask what reaction you get from children that, that you meet now as a result of the Harry Potter film? Yes, of course. Of course, what you forget, you know, is it goes on and on and on, and yeah. children are still watching it. You think, oh my god, you know, that was it was years ago, and but but they, well, I have to say, you know, they all they think she's the most the biggest villain in the piece, which of course she is, mm -hmm. and um, and so I'm delighted that that it it did the right job, and and I think another impressive thing about those films is that as they what listen, they had their audience, but as they went on. Um, they got better and better. You know, they always strived to make it the best it could be. They didn't think, oh, they didn't relax and listen, it doesn't matter, let's just, just do it. No, each film got better and better. And I think that's mm. a great testament to the producers. It is, but it was also because they knew the expectation. They knew that they were making films for an audience that adored the story already and they mustn't let them down. Absolutely. Now, Imelda, hmm. she is not the only formidable woman you have ever played, because I had the privilege of watching you in Gypsy. At the end, you've got that extraordinary monologue in music. How oh, you have got more talent than your poor benighted daughter ever had, and it's your turn now. Uh, wow. I mean, is she a monster? Oh, I think so, yeah. Um, she is, but, and of course it started from being utterly unloved when she was a child. 
Um, and there's the end of the first half of the show, which is um, I had a, you know, I had a dream mm. um, is about, you know, that she remembers her mother walking out on her and she remembers being abandoned, really emo totally, emotionally, totally mm. messed up. And of course, she's a real woman, of course, which a lot of people didn't know who came to the show. You know, we did it in, in 2015. But um, and she went on to do a lot worse. I'm here to tell you that she shot a couple of people. Um, so she she was a rather a messed up woman. But that 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 need it again, which is sort of is so wrong in a teacher with Dolores Umbridge or a parent making your child do what you think you should have done. Yes. So they are not allowed to in any way develop their own stuff, be it good or bad or mediocre. And um, and also she was, you know, it was in the depression and she had to you know, feed the kids. And, and you know, she was a um, she was a force, as you said, but she had to be because she had to keep going. And she was driven by, as you said, that anger and that which, of course, is fueled by abandonment and emptiness, an emptiness that needs filling now. Here's the thing. You did not come from a theatrical background yourself. No, no. Your mum had a job? My mum was a hairdresser and we lived above our lovely shop. Um, and my dad was an Irish, both Irish, both immigrants. They came over in the 50s like a lot of, a lot of the Irish did, a lot of other people did, Windrush, all that. Um, but she loved being a hairdresser and dad worked on the roads. Um, so yes, the theatre wasn't in our family, but music was. Mum played the fiddle and the accordion and there would be the, the parties at home um, and people would be singing and things like that. So it, was, it wasn't you know, in a professional sense, but there was a lot of the, the music. And your mum loved your talent. Yes, I think, well, I hope she did. I'm sure she did. And, uh, and I think, you know, of course she tells me this later, but I went to a convent um, and Oh gosh, Shades of Dolores. Yes, it was uh, up in Highgate. It's still there, um, LSU, La Santa Union. And, um, but in those days, back in the 60s, it was, it was just a junior school and it was private. And I remember my mum, you know, they were, she wanted to pay for me to go to school because she thought it would, you know, you know be good for me and better for me. And, um, and of course it was there that my elocution teacher, which we all had in those days, who also taught drama, she said, I think you ought to come and do drama lessons with me. So I did. And so thank goodness, you know, it was that one teacher that uh, made that happen. Now, isn't that funny that it is always, and I know our listeners will appreciate, I think it's always that one teacher that makes it happen. Yes. Well, it's, it's you want a teacher who's going to spot your potential mm. or even or even if 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 that's not there to try and encourage something out even you know and give everyone a chance and some people of course you know we're not all we're not all born scientists or born actors or but but if someone can at that very young age uh just that little spark to ignite some sort of hope in a child that may not have any now i sort of i'd done school plays you know i've been i'd been sort of doing it but then Mrs Stoker then just really said right and we need to up this particular game and uh, and so she did. I met you at the Chelsea Flower Show yes and I said to you I've just seen you in Gypsy and I do not understand because you're not eight foot tall are you? No far from it actually three foot from that 
<laughs> okay, okay. And yet you summon up this extraordinary energy and you absolutely tear the place to bits. And you said to me during the run of Gypsy, I could do nothing else, literally nothing else. You know, playing a part like that, uh, you have a huge responsibility. And um, so therefore I take that very seriously. And so I knew what I had to do in order to produce that energy and that sound and that technique every night, as well as the emotional input, which means, you know, I don't go out, I don't do anything. So after, let's say after the show, let's take it from there. After the show, uh, people say, oh, can we go out for dinner? That's a no-go. No, no, no. You can come down for 10 minutes into the, into the dressing room and that's it, say hello and goodbye. Then I'd get to go, go home in the car and I'd do cool down exercises in the car to cool the voice down because the larynx has been pushed and pulled all night. So there were cool down exercises in the car to bring your larynx back down, like, oh, just settling all back down. And so it'd be about 10, 10 minutes or so of these, uh, of these vocal exercises. And then you go home. I mean, I'm so bloody boring. I go home cup of chamomile tea maybe an oat cake straight to sleep I was not one of those people oh I'm buzzing for hours no I've been buzzing I'm knackered so uh straight to sleep and you know I would wake up in the, ne the next morning take the dog for a walk and then I spend the day so no one comes over for coffee don't do lunches with anyone I just you know I'll go out I'll go walk with the dog do a bit of shopping put a wash in then a bit of a rest then a sleep then a little bit of supper and then into the theatre the vocal warm-up, my own vocal warm-up. What what sort of noises are they? Well, they're just they're just you know singing exercises. A lot okay. of a lot of those, and they're specific, you know, for me and for this part. Okay. And then, and then we do the show, and in the interval, I have reset exercises, and that's again to reset the larynx after that big number of I had a dream, mm -hmm. uh, and then to reset again to just to rest the larynx down. So you say you reach the point where you can stride onto the stage in character, but it's not always that easy, is it? Ah, yes. Ah, yes. So <laughs> it's so good. This it was in the last week, actually, which surprised me because we did it for eight months. It was in the last week at the at the Savoy Theatre, these lovely old theatres. Um, mm. And um, anyway, my character starts at the back of the auditorium. The show begins and of course the baby Louise is singing and from the back of the auditorium you hear, sing out Louise, and that, <laughs> that cut comes up. And so that one, so I, I was at the back of the auditorium and I, I'd got my coat and I'd got dressed in the dressing room, walked around, it'd been about 15 minutes before I'm on. And, um, and then I, when I put my coat on, I thought, oh, I'm gonna have to get wardrobe to fix the seam of this coat because it's not, it's not sitting right. Oh, well, never mind. on we go. So as I, was going down the auditorium saying I'll sing out of it and I'm holding a dog I'm holding a little dog um it was not my dog it was my dog in Chichester but not in London I was holding a little dog and I felt a mouse on the in inside my coat walking up my arm there was and I thought ah right okay we've got a mouse going up my arm up into my so obviously I put the coat on with the mouse in and the mouse had just obviously got a huge fright, just stayed there, just, you know, frozen. And so I'm, as I was walking, the mouse started going, I've got to get out of here, I've got to get out of here. Um, so so, so and then I'm walking and then I have to sing a song and the mouse is still in the coat. Um, so I, I just started singing, you know, some people can get a thrill. 
doing all that. And the mouse is running up and down my arm going, get me out of here. So I was a lot of movement with the left arm, thinking, well, the mouse will fly out, you know, past my wrist. And no, not at all. So, so that was it. And anyway, it, it, I don't know when it escaped, but it did. It's now, it's now a family pet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I mean, it's amazing what your brain can handle. You know, the dialogue, the song, thinking about, right, I know, I take my coat off in this next bit. When I take the coat off, I really shake the coat, really shake the coat. I did that, no sign of the mouse. But I, so all these things are going on while you're, while you're doing the show. Yeah. So um, that, was, that was a good one. You said something a few minutes ago, you said, you are that person, the queen. Oh, hmm. Oh. Mm, enough said. Mm, that's a different kettle of bananas, isn't it? Let me just, just tell anybody who may, you know, be new to the Earth from Mars and might not know that you are about to play the Queen in the next series, is it, of The Crown? Mm. You must mm. be following the news with some avidity, watching what's happening. <laughs> oh, well, I, I am and I'm not, uh, as I dare say, Her Majesty uh, probably, uh, <laughs> yes, sort of keeps that at, an arm, at arm's length. Now, I'm now playing someone who everyone really, really knows. And also the extra challenge, I think, now is when um, Claire Foy did the first series, to all of us, that seemed like history. Mm. Yes. And then, uh, uh, you know, and then following on from that with Olivia Coleman, again, sort of seemed like, a bit, you know, the 60s. It seemed like, and now I'm playing, you know, we start in 1991, uh, playing, you know, someone in much more, in a way, recent. So, mm. so that's, that's the extra challenge I have of people going, oh, I don't think she's like that at all. Can I give you a tip, Imelda? Please do. I am... Um met somebody who knew somebody who was the Queen's hairdresser. Yes. Who said that what the Queen likes, and perhaps insists upon, is that it is entirely symmetrical and her hair has to look exactly the same, one profile and the other profile. So whichever side people are watching her from looks the same. I just thought you might need that. It might help you get into character. That's that's a very good starting point. Come on. That's a very good that's very good actually. Well it, it goes to show how she she knows how she wants to be to be presented to people. Yeah. As something that is, you know, she's sort of fairly straight down the line, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. The preparation for the part of somebody as the queen is that different from a part that has been written in a drama. You know, it's not like a part I can put a spin on. <laughs> and so it has to be everything. It has to be watching her. It has to be reading about the past. And then I have to go, and here is the script. And that has to be like a drama, like a, another drama that I might have done. Um, so all the other stuff, if you like, that goes with it, the look, the voice, the mannerisms, that's all work that I do separately. And then on the day, I'm just there serving this story. Hmm. Um, and so in a way, it, it, it's if, if someone had just given me those scripts and then it was a, a woman called Elizabeth, um, I would just be doing that, that story. But because it's, there's so much weight of the past and not only herself, but the series, uh, you know, I, I bear that weight. I have to sit in my room getting frightened and think, I can't do it, I can't do it. And then you go, yes, you can. And then you start and then you get on with it. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of everything. 
I think, with this one. So you're nervous, and even more so, I suspect, if you were to know that the Queen was probably watching as well. I'm hoping she won't be. I think she'll probably say, do you know, I think I know myself by now. And I, <laughs> I don't need to watch anyone else who thinks they know me. Like when I did Gypsy, you know, I spent in this room, actually, I spent ages. So sitting watching, of course, Patti Lapone and all the old other people who played it and thinking, I can't. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then you watch it and then you never watch them again. Hmm. And then you go, this is the script this is the woman I'm playing. But of course, I then can slightly bend it to me with this. Of course, it has to be, it is me doing it. So I can't pretend I'm, I am the queen. It is, you know, I'm, I'm the vessel to which I am serving her up to people, hopefully. I want to ask you, because um, you are married to a very famous actor and a much loved actor, Jim Carter who every now and then finds he's married to Dolores Umbridge or Mama Rose or the Queen. <laughs> now, does your attitude to him change at all? Has he mentioned it? Do you get a little bit more evil or maybe a little bit more dominant or maybe a little bit more regal? I wouldn't dare, Esther. Um, um, because I, <laughs> of course I'm living with Carson, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's the, <laughs> and I've been living with Carson for many, many years. So, um, well, at least he's downstairs, Imelda. That's true. He's downstairs, and that's where he has to bloody well stay. Um, uh, no, we, uh, no, when we're at home, we do, we do the garden, and that's what, uh, that's what we do. So we don't, uh, you know, that that would be. Uh, I think that'd be quite rude to impose uh, one's work on one's. Um, partner. A fr friend of mine said, they said, you know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see Imelda and Maggie Smith as two detectives having seen you in the Downton film. Ooh! <laughs> Don't you think that's a good little um, casting? That'd be Smith and Staunton. DCI Smith and... Oh yes, that'd be quite good. I'd have to be the... No, she'd want to be the comedy sidekick, wouldn't she? I'd have to be the straight guy. Um... Yes, God, that would be nice. You developed a very good relationship in Downton, I felt. Yes, yes, we sort of gave each other um, as good as we got. You <laughs> certainly did. It was yes, yes, that was nice. That was very nice indeed. Now, Melda, we ask all our star guests if there's a particular cause they care about and want more people to know about. And when we asked you that question, you chose crisis. Why did you do that? Well, crisis is... Um, national charity for homelessness mm. and um for two years we volunteered at christmas and we did boxing day you get me on serving dinners on boxing day i was like a dervish i loved it i i loved doing I and mean, i really loved doing practical things you know um and and being a practical help so I, I i did that and i i really enjoyed it and then just learning more about what they do year round where they have centers that people can go in and say i don't know how to apply for a job sit down we can help you i, I don't know i need a doctor's appointment sit down we can help you well we have found somebody owen he's called and he has lived through this hello there owen how very nice of you to to do this very good of you no problem at all, no problem. <laughs> Owen is not actually homeless as we speak. How long have you had somewhere of your own, Owen? I have just moved into a flat, so just over two weeks ago, I have now my own space, a one-bedroom flat, 
um, which is amazing because I was homeless for, um, well, my homeless journey lasted about two years. Um, so prior to where I was living, where I'm living now, I was in temporary accommodation. And before that, I was in a homeless shelter and um, effectively um, street homeless. So, yeah, so it's amazing to be in my own flat and have my own space with different rooms rather than just living in one room. Um, it's brilliant, yeah. Did you ever actually have to sleep on the streets? I I sofa surfed for a little while at, at first. I stayed with a friend um, and sofa surfed for a few weeks. Um, when it turned out that I wasn't going to be able to get myself back on my feet properly, I came back to where I was able to get help from my local council. Um, and I went into, um, at first, so I was sleeping in my car. So um, it was January that I was doing that. So it was freezing cold at night. I didn't have um, very much money, so I couldn't afford the petrol to run the engine to heat the car. So it was freezing cold. Um, and eventually I got into a, a cold weather shelter. So I was in there at night, um, but in the day I was on the street. Yes. I mean, did you have boots? Did you have warm coat? I, well, not really, no. I mean, I, I just sort of had one change of clothes. I, um, I had, uh, I didn't have a winter coat. Um, I had a pair of shoes, which eventually were worn through, which I got replaced. Um, I had one change of clothes, which I frequently washed at the crisis centre. Um, and so, yeah, it was freezing cold. And I, I was living out of a, a Sainsbury's bag for life at the time. <laughs> are you working, if I may ask, are you working now or do you have any s s source of income now, Owen? Yeah, so I was relying on universal credit, but I just started a job last week. Um, so I'm going to have a bit more of an income now. So I'll be able to build my life up a bit more. Anybody finding themselves in the situation that you had found yourself in, what message would you give to them? Try not to panic. <laughs> I know that's much easier said than done. Um, try not to panic. Try and get in contact with everyone that you can that would help. So that might be your local authority, the local council, crisis 100%, um, especially if you're in an area where they've got a, um, a skylight centre. Um, and just anyone else who would help, I would say that um, it won't last forever. There is a way out, um, and it just takes um, engaging with the services that will offer. Crisis can definitely point you in that direction, and they're, they're, they're amazing with um, you know everything that they can offer and the advice that they can offer. Um, and they were there at a time when I wasn't able to help myself and when I, I, you know, other people couldn't help me in the way that I needed. Um, and yeah, to try not to panic. I, I wish I could have said that to myself at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah. Well, thank you both very much. Um, Owen, if you happen to be around crisis at Christmas time and you find your turkey and sprouts are being served by the queen, don't be alarmed because it may be Imelda, you know, who's got used to wearing the crown. Won't take it off. <laughs> Can't take it off. <laughs> it's stuck forever. Thank you both very much. We have, um, we have a final question, actually, if um, Adrian dares put it to the Queen. Well, I do, um, yeah, Your Royal Highness. Um, as you know, this programme is called That's Afterlife. Um, and we're always interested in people's perception of what the afterlife is going to be like and what in particular you might be taking with you to sort of tide you by. I'm going to be taking with me a pot 
from my garden that has a plant called Daphne. And this particular Daphne is called Oreo marginata. It's the most glorious scent I, I've ever smelled. So I'm taking that because in the afterlife, I want to be there just having this beautiful scent all around me. I also might take a pair of binoculars because I just want to see what's really going on in the far off lands of this afterlife. But it's always going to be, I want to be in the afterlife outside. I'm imagining the afterlife is in nature. So that's where I want to be. And then you can always ring a bell and Carson will bring you a cup of tea. Oh, he better <laughs> had, yes. We cannot thank you enough. Thank you, Owen, so much for joining us and telling us your story. Imelda, thank you. It's been such a revelation because like all professionals, you make what you do look effortless. And people may think you just float onto our screens or onto a stage and produce this amazing performance. You have given us so many insights and I will never be frightened of a mouse in my current house <laughs> again. The worst thing about that story was that it was working its way up towards your face. <laughs> So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Owen. Well, just as we always suspected, uh, talented on screen, talented in life. Uh, what, a, what a joy to talk to. She's, she's brilliantly talented and entirely grounded in the real world. And she mm. makes you understand the huge amount of hard work that goes into what she produces on stage, on screen, mm. it's, um, well, I shall think about that for a long time to come. Uh, Esther, just got time for one final question. Uh, Catherine from the Cotswolds, which four people would you invite to your dream dinner party and would they be from people from That's Life? Aha. Uh -huh. Yes, yes. I would definitely invite um, Sir Nicholas Winton, who is the man that we revealed on That's Life had saved a generation of Jewish children from the Holocaust. I would have Annie Mizzen, you know, the little lady we used to meet in the, um, in the street market. Was it whiskey or brandy? Whiskey or brandy, and, and yes, and she still exists, you know, immortalized on the internet. So I would certainly have her. She became a star at the age of 86. Here's a funny one. I would have Peter Foster, our worst con man. No, he never no. stop swindling people because I just think it's an extraordinary sort of attitude to life. And I, I would like to see. He once said to me, Esther Ranson, I am your worst nightmare. And he was so right. After the meal, he'd put us all on diet pills, wouldn't he? <laughs> yes, because he always sold those. And I would, uh, and they never worked. And I would have Victoria Wood because we were able to give her an opportunity on that slide. And I never stopped admiring her. And uh, at the end of the meal, I'd get her to do one last rendition of Let's Do It, the ballad of Barry and Frieda, I think their names were. Yes. So uh, that's the end of our uh, fantastic podcast. Uh, if you'd like to join us again, please, please do subscribe to uh, That's Afterlife podcast found on any of your favourite streaming platforms, or you can find us on our website, which is that'safterlife.com. And remember... 
We'll be reading your letters each episode for more revelations from Esther. So uh, make sure you send your views to hello at thatsafterlife.com. That's hello at thatsafterlife.com. And now I'm afraid it's bye-bye. So it's bye-bye from Adrian. And it's bye-bye from Esther. Bye now. That's Afterlife is a Captive Minds production and is series produced by Ross Haley. The creator and executive producer is Liz Mills.